Yeah. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, the meeting place for modern-day heretics. Not necessarily people who reject traditional religion, but rather those who perhaps prefer traditional religion to the mindless obscurantism of today's materialistic, uh, bureaucratic, scientific world. This is uh, Kevin Barrett, and uh, we have a great show coming up tonight. First hour, Alan Stevo will be discussing his new article on how to wear uh, non-masks on Amtrak and uh, the general science behind uh, masking and avoiding masks, uh, as well as perhaps a little uh, discussion of Bitcoin and other issues. And then in the second hour, Robert Singer comes on to talk about eschatology. And specifically, he says the end is nigh. But it's not nigh in 2022. It's nigh in 2023. Thank goodness we have a whole year before the uh, proverbial you-know-what hits the fan. Okay, that should be interesting. Anyway, let's get, let's get to the first hour. Alan Stevo's writings are really good. He's a passionate uh, libertarian a freedom fighter, and he's uh, pretty practical nuts and bolts about how to make the world better. Uh, and he is definitely up in arms about the COVID restrictions that are turning our lives into one big gulag, and specifically the, the masking thing. Uh, and so let, let's get into that. It's her heretical, and we'll get deplatformed, but I don't think I'm on any platforms with this show anymore uh, where I have to worry about that. So let's be honest and call it the way we see it. Hey, welcome, Alan Stevo. How are you? Hello, hey, Alan. It's a joy to be with you. Hello, hello. Thank you. There for you are. Me. Hey, great to hear you. Um, yeah, so I've, I've been uh, reading your stuff for a while and uh, a little bit more than usual lately. And uh, in particular, I was thinking about taking an Amtrak train trip, and I saw your article on how to ride Amtrak without a mask, and I said, you know, I've ridden Amtrak a whole lot back in the pre-masking era, and I think this would work. Uh, have you actually tried it? I haven't. I haven't done the Amtrak myself. Um, I have gotten tickets through Amtrak, and that is the extent of it. I wanted to see the, the process through that far, um, and it's worked for others as well. Um, customer service is real easy going about it. I found the same to be true with TSA customer service, to tell you the truth. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's, there's one kind of story presented in the media about how afraid you should be and how you just need to comply. And when you push against that system a little bit, there's a very different story, a very different truth to it. Yeah, I've, I've discovered that, too, and I've discovered that you can get away with quite a lot uh, and make people happier and healthier by interacting with them positively about these things. You know, you don't necessarily have to be kind of angry, crabby, and paranoid when you talk to some Amtrak service person. On the contrary, you can kind of be a little extra human, and that often seems to work better. Yeah, you're totally right. And this is, this is really what it comes down to, this, this ability to have face-to-face -face conversations, even with someone you disagree with, and done calmly, right? This, this civil interaction, this is really, in so many ways, our society is, founded upon this, this ability to, to have a calm conversation with someone you disagree with. And um, 
you know, there's all kinds of ways to kind of, uh, to kind of get through your day unmasked. And I, uh, I wrote this book, Face Masks in One Lesson, that talks about how to live without a mask um, and how to live normally and how to be treated like a VIP, in fact. But really what it comes down to is doing what VIPs have done for, for, for forever, what handicapped people have known they, they've had to do for forever, which is to, to let someone know, hey, I need this from you. Can you give that to me? And, and if you can put yourself there, the, the, the world opens up for you. The, the, the masking is not necessary. You can go through life unmasked, treated like a VIP if you can have that conversation. Fascinating. And those face-to-face conversations, of course, are precisely the conversations that the current COVID restrictions are designed to prevent. The masking, which eliminates most of the facial signals, which are a huge part of human conversation. And then, of course, the uh, forcing us into these Zoom meetings rather than actually getting face-to-face with people and, and distancing, you know, staying six feet apart or 60 feet or whatever they say it has to be this week. You know, all of this craziness almost seems as if it were designed by some authoritarian autistic weirdo who wanted to eliminate human human conversations and human relations and and make everything super mediated and super distanced so humans never could get together again and rebel against the well whatever they are the autistic authoritarians or maybe the uh, the demonic uh, aliens for all I know so did you ever consider that that it's it's almost too perfect the way that this whole covid paradigm has fit the authoritarian agenda you know i'm not i'm not a big fan of government so i tend to rather than um leaning in the direction of wow they're they're such brilliant brilliant evil people i tend to lean in the direction of of what my experience has been what the reality is it tends to be that that the people who are trying to run our lives are are quite inept most often um and yes you know it fits kind of a plan and and you know we learned you know you found out you found out in like the 1970s what happens if you let the television raise a kid and then we started to learn the 1990s well what happens if you let a computer raise a kid and and now we're now we're learning, you know, well, what happens if you let those things raise your kid, then you mask them and you don't let them have normal interaction with people. And, you know, there's this Brown University study that says, you know, there might be a 20 IQ drop for someone um, and, and you're, you're hitting at it. This is just, you know, a- at its core, this is just this, this incredibly anti-human thing that can be done, that, that's being done. And it tends to be in, in my, my study of communism, communist regimes come up with the most awful things to do to people but i i i don't believe it's by intent i think when you stop focusing on the humanity of of the person you're you're uh interacting with when you stop focusing on humanity just inhumanity seems to spring up indeed and uh, these COVID restrictions uh, do almost seem like sort of you know ritual virtue signals uh for inhumanity in a certain strange way uh, well uh, maybe we should quickly go over the reasons why helping people get through life without masks is not an evil, terrible thing to do. I did have a a radio guest on a while back, my my old friend Dave Lindorf, who's done great work on a number of topics, but he's kind of a pro-mask fanatic from my perspective. I guess he has a, a some a medical condition that makes him fear for his life if he does catch COVID, and so he's he worries when he's jogging 
down the jogging path that the person jogging towards him without a mask might somehow infect him with COVID. And he lived in Asia for a long time where everybody masks normally during flu season. And he just sort of takes it for granted that masks do help at least somewhat against respiratory viruses. So your book on masks, uh, face masks, you've done actually a couple, I guess, face masks in one lesson and face masks hurt kids. Uh, treats the scientific evidence about the inefficacy of masking. Maybe you could sort of summarize the points from that. I'd love to. Thank you. Yeah, face masks for kids. That's a. It's a new out. That's 500 pages of science on how face masks are not are not neutral for you. You know, there's this narrative. Hey, it's neutral for you. So you know, why not just put it on? Uh, because it makes others comfortable, because it might help others. But, you know, the truth is it's quite harmful for you. The mask, within seconds of putting on the mask, has measurable effects on your kidneys and your lungs, your brain. Um, and and it, I go into that in depth there. Um, but I, the, the, the first, the first uh, 15 chapters or so of the book, and the short chapters, or the first chapter of Face Masks in One Lesson, um, I, cover, I cover the science behind it. And if you'd ever, if you'd ever like to have... Mr. Lindorf and I to talk about it on air together, uh, you know, different viewpoints. I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to do that. But the, the best, the best study of 2020, um, April 3rd, 2020, the CDC said uh, face masks uh, should be worn by everyone, right? They, they put these April 3rd, 2020, they put up these orders within weeks. They, they should have done it April 1st, right? For an April fool's joke. Right. That would have been nice. That would have been nice. Um, Within weeks of that happening, they, the, the scientists at the CDC, instead of the political hacks at the CDC giving their opinion, the scientists at the CDC gave their opinion in um, the CDC's own peer-reviewed journal of epidemiology called Emerging Infectious Disease um, in, in a paper um, uh, written by a team out of uh, the University of Hong Kong, uh, Zhao, X-I-A-O. They, they went through the 14 randomized controlled trials that had happened to date, and they had, they said, listen, COVID's going to be a big deal. We got to figure this out quickly. We got to get rid of the, the superstition. We have to say what works and what doesn't work. And they determined without, without a doubt, face masks do not protect you from the spread of respiratory virus. Just no question about it. And, and they, they were very clear. They said, listen, you, you can't be uh, messing around with this superstition. You got to look at things that do work. Um, and, you know, there's things that do work. It's like um, the state I grew up in, Illinois. Uh, we have a, a very heavy governor. That man, that man, if he would have spent his time saying, hey, obesity is a big deal with COVID. We got to take care of ourselves in real ways instead of a mask or lockdowns don't work. Uh, well, you know, well, wait a minute. Like lo- losing 50 pounds or 75 pounds is probably a lot harder than slapping a mask over your face. Uh, you're asking a lot from that governor. You're, you're, that's, instead of the, the easy pat answer, there were some serious some serious work that could be done that could have benefited all of us. And I, I lost a few pounds during COVID. I was like, you know, I was looking at the science and I was saying the mask is nonsense. The lockdowns are nonsense. COVID could be a thing. I don't know, but I'm going to lose a few pounds just in case. Yeah. Same here. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So actually all this attention on stuff that doesn't really work uh, might actually be killing people by distracting them from the things that do work. Oh, that's totally, I mean, this is this is part of the crime. Part of the crime of 2020 and beyond is is this idea that you know these these nonsense answers are going to are going to save the day for you. And you know a lot of corners have been cut on the 
the science. A lot of corners have been cut on how we've agreed for, for centuries humanity is supposed to run an effective society. Um, and, and, you know, we threw a lot of things out the window for a political narrative. Um, and, and we've come back to more and more we're seeing, you know, issues with the, with the vaccine. We're seeing issues with uh, the, the kids who've been masked this whole time. We're seeing issues even with surgeons who've been masked this whole time. And we're seeing that, you know, spend more time exercising. Uh, make sure you're not eating sugar when you're feeling sick. Uh, make sure your vitamin D levels are high. Make sure you're getting some sun. Um, if, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you have serious uh, underlying conditions, make sure you're paying attention to them, right? But we knew this. We knew this from February 2020 with the Grand Princess, with the, the cruise ship. We had a, a, a perfect experiment to figure out what is COVID doing. And, from, and I happened to be on that cruise ship, the cruise before. I knew quite a few people who were on that ship. Really? Um, wow, well, yeah. that must be an <laughs> interesting coincidence for you. I, I, uh, <laughs> Your synchronicity, yeah, family I guess. drama. Why did you take us on the COVID cruise ship, Alan? But whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> oh, man. So, so what did we learn from the uh, from that cruise ship about COVID? And it was, uh, if you're obese, watch out for COVID. If you're over 80, watch out for COVID. Uh, if, if you've got diabetes, watch out for COVID. Um, COVID is, does not harm the does not harm the young. Um, the the uh, if some if some cold is going to blow you over, it might be COVID. Um, and this it wasn't it wasn't the we knew then that it was going to be, if if that was COVID on the ship, and that's what the researchers told us it was, we knew then that it was going to be a mild flu season. That was what the equivalent was going to be. And it looks like the numbers from 2020 indicate that it was a mild flu season. Well, the, the official death counts, though, are pretty high. And you know, the, the official counts... Um, and that they are to some extent backed up by excess death counts, although there's a debate about what percentage of the excess deaths are coming from COVID, what percentage are with COVID, what percentage are maybe uh, these various indirect effects of the pandemic, actually lockdown effects, you know, suicides and drugs and alcohol and things like that. But and it does seem that most likely from everything I've seen, COVID does look like it's killed more people than flus have at least for a long time and i do have uh, doctors that i trust and of course my two favorite doctors the two i trust the most are now having their licenses uh, yanked and they're they're fighting for their licenses um you know one of them is eric beeth over in belgium and the other is meryl nass here in the united states these are basically the the two doctors that i would respect and listen to the most and they're both in a fight for their licenses but both of them do admit that COVID exists, and Eric has treated lots and lots of COVID patients, and he says that with his early treatment protocol, which does involve ivermectin, uh, he I don't when I t- last talked to him, none of his hundreds hundreds of patients have died, but that he he and his colleagues have seen tons of people with these various kinds of COVID symptoms, and the typical one that they see that you don't really get from flus is people come in. Uh, with these really low oxygen levels, but they seem perfectly happy. They're smiling, but they're, they're low energy. And then you measure their action, you find out why. Uh, they're having some breathing issues. You x-ray them, and it looks like they've got ground glass in their lungs. And so Eric has seen this hundreds of times, that, that syndrome, 
And so there's, there, I think there really is a, a COVID-19 that has an affinity, although hopefully this Omicron variant less so than the earlier types, for burying itself deep in the lungs. And it can sometimes uh, kill pretty healthy people uh, like John Chuck, my co-host at False Flag Weekly News, who had his lungs utterly destroyed in just a few days. Uh, and you know, in a few days, suddenly they said the only way he would survive would be with a lung, plant, lung transplant, and then he was dead. It was that ground glass in the lungs thing. So I, I, I think that dismissals of COVID as just either a hoax or just the flu uh, are probably wrong. But the, uh, of course, th- that said, the propaganda machine has convinced people that it's vastly scarier than it really is. So I, I would take a middle road on that, and and I'm open to hearing your take. Yeah, the the, the question of with with COVID or from COVID, you know, this is this is an important question, um, and that is that is the uh, fundamental uh, problem we encountered with the measure from from early 2020. That that change change in the measuring of uh, someone dying from a respiratory virus um, was done there. The that's a big deal. Um, the the ground glass opacities, you know, this is. Okay, we don't need to go into the specific symptoms of uh, the the cold that appeared. A coronavirus appeared. A coronavirus appeared in 2020. Um, the the survival rate was very high. The um, the death rate was very low. The impact it had to have on society could have been very minimal. We chose instead to have this very heavy-handed impact that was very Chinese and very un-American what we did. Um, and it was, it was bad. It was bad. That was, that was where the problems of 2020 came from, that we didn't say, Hey, we can rely on our freedoms here. Instead, we said, how can we be as totalitarian as possible? And people went for that, um, which says a great deal about the United States, not just about the leadership, but about, about us as people that so many of us went for that. Um, so, you know, about a million. I I don't disagree uh, with that. (laughs) About 3 million people die every year. Um, from all of all causes in the U.S., about a percentage of the population to be very rough, and it wasn't it wasn't ten percent of the population that died. It, it wasn't we weren't decimated, right? It wasn't thirty percent of the population that died, like with the the bubonic plague. It was still around one percent. Is it one point two five percent? Is it point seven five percent? That's that's like the debate to have, but it's not. It wasn't the bubonic plague. But we treated it like worse than the bubonic. Well, that, that's a lot of people, though. One percent of uh, three hundred plus million people. It come what one percent of three hundred million would be three million people. And if you compare that to things that we've been horrified by in the past, like losing fifty thousand soldiers in Vietnam and so on, that three million figure looks pretty big. And that's three million all causes. That's every year all causes about three million Americans die. Oh, I see. Right. But, but, but with, with the COVID, the estimates have been up to maybe sort of half a million for the two plague years uh, for a total of around a million. Yes. And there we there we say, you know, well, what happened to all those flu deaths that were supposed to occur? Did, did COVID take care of the flu? Did we did we turn COVID into flu on paper? Did we turn flu or flu, flu into COVID on paper? But this is listen, we can go. There's a million different perspectives here. I want your listeners to be able to never wear that mask again. That's what I want. I want to help them never wear that mask again um, because they can do it. They can live life normally and they can be leaders in their communities. They do it and it's not hard and no one has to be yelling at them during it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I personally, I agree with you. You know, I, I think that 
those 15 studies that you cited, the, the, uh, basically the good studies, uh, the serious studies, uh, which were done in advance of, of the pandemic all showed that masks really didn't work for respiratory viruses, which are so small that it's the equivalent of trying to stop, you know, smoke particles or even smaller. If you imagine somebody you know, smoking a cigar and blowing it through these masks, I mean, you, are you not going to even smell the cigar? Uh, what percentage of the smoke is it going to actually stop uh, enough to really make a difference? Probably not. So, yeah, I, I think the harm done by these masking policies, both in terms of forcing uh, this totalitarian mindset on the population and uh, robbing us of the facial expressions that are such a huge part of communication, especially children. And I think you've, you've pointed out that the worst of this has fallen on children. It seems to me just thunderingly obvious that the harm is vastly greater than the dubious benefits. Oh, totally. And this is, you know, when you get the harm of a child, um, you know, we, we can we can we can say, you know, what's the harm to you and I? Um, and what does that harm look like five years out? It becomes when you're dealing with the formative years, it becomes we really have no idea what the cumulative impact is going to be from uh, uh, someone who's 10 years old, eight years from now, having gone through two years of masking. Um, not just the people, not just them, but the people around them as well. And, you know, does that, does that slow down their development, uh, 20 years? Does it slow down their development three years? Do they, do they never develop in certain ways? Um, and that's entirely possible that, that some children never, never develop in certain ways. So instead of having these conversations really publicly, you know, people, people get deplatformed. You, you joked, you joked at the beginning. Well, we'll get deplatformed for talking about masks, right? We should, we should be having these conversations. The masks, there's no question at this point. The masks are not neutral for you. The masks do not help you. We knew the masks did, do not help you as of, as of, uh, May 2020. And what you're describing is these mechanistic studies where, you know, this particle size, that pore size, uh, the smoke comes out, what percentage comes out, what percentage is held in. These mechanistic studies, they, they, uh, you can, they've been able to be used on both sides saying, hey, the masks work, the mask doesn't work. Um, and when you get to the, at the end of six months, does the mask population have different effects than the unmasked population? The mask does not help. That is, that is the, with a respiratory virus after six months, after a year, the mask does not help. Um, so since it doesn't help, there's nothing immoral about you not wearing the mask. Since you're not saving grandma's life, there's nothing immoral about you not wearing the mask. And it's really as easy as just, you know, when I go to the grocery store, I live, I live in hardcore lockdown land. Uh, left coast, and I go through my day. The, one of the most locked down cities in the country still. I go through my day normally with no mask, and everyone can do that. And mm. uh, really, where, where are you, by the way? West coast, west coast, big city, super locked down. Does that do okay? Yeah, yeah. I, I spent a week in San Francisco in September. I went out to San Francisco for the 9/11 Truth Film Festival and spent uh, spent a week there. And it was interesting, you know, with my little vaccine. I got into the restaurants with a vaccine parody card, um, you know, claiming that I, I, I got the inoculation at the Jonestown and I got the Jonestown and Jonestown vaccine at the depopulation clinic and, and things like that. Um, and then, you know, you put the mask on just to walk in and then you quickly take it off <laughs> as long as you stick it on your face for two seconds as you walk through the door and then just rip it off. You're fine. It's, it's really weird. It's like a whole social game or something. It's a game. 
to game. That's interesting. That so they didn't look at your vaccine card too closely, huh? No, they 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 and they didn't chuckle. I mean, they they I, I didn't even get a laugh. I think they were just not even paying attention to what was on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of there's a tremendous amount of noncompliance. Uh, it, it's really neat to watch. Yeah, my, all my friends out there had had blank CDC vaccine cards they were handing out, you know, like pancakes. <laughs> oh man. I guess, I guess that's technically criminal behavior. Um, they, you know, they are, are wonderful, uh, lockdown totalitarian regime is going to start threatening to send us to the gulag if you, uh, try to make people laugh with vaccine parody cards. <laughs> oh man. This is, uh, I had, I had the chance to live for a few years in former Czechoslovakia, former communist Czechoslovakia. And, uh, I, I, <laughs> I went there a well-indoctrinated American socialist, just indoctrinated as they come out of college. And um, it was my first job out of college. And I, you know, I just thought socialism was great. And it didn't take long for these folks that were fresh out of communism to say, hey, let's let's sit and talk a little bit about what what, what these ideas amount to. Um, and that was so important for me. I wish I wish every American upon graduating college could go spend some time in a post-communist country for a bit. Um, but, but what I, you know, there's this, this interesting thing that happens where, where people don't know that the change has happened. They, they don't, it just, it just gradually takes place. And I always wondered, how does that happen in a country? How does this prosperous place uh, turn into, into this kind of form of communism? And, and I watched that Corona communism happen firsthand. I, I've been wondering so long and it's kind of neat how when you when you talk to people after communism, you know, it's the people like you who become these like folk heroes, these cherished heroes, or the people who figured out how to smuggle the illegal things around, like you know how to how to figure out ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, or you know how to smuggle an incandescent light bulb into California. Even these people are are seen as as total heroes for for uh, facing off the regime. Wild. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing about the communism comparisons, I, I think they're true up to a certain point. And I actually wrote about the uh, Stalinist gesture of trying to revoke Meryl Nass's medical license and force her to undergo a psychiatric evaluation because of her COVID heresy. That's the sort of thing that the Stalins used to do, of course. And you know, they, they politicized psychiatry and they used to question the sanity of anybody who thought outside the box. But the thing is that the communist ideology is uh, as it's, just, it's it's sort of you know like it's like socialism only more so which means the state owns basically all the means of production theoretically and in fact what we see in in the west today and even to some extent in the communist world but in some ways i think it's actually better in some place like china is that the oligarchy uh, is taking away our freedom but they have no restrictions forcing them to act in the name of the best interests of ordinary people. So they become uh, predatory or parasitic. And in China, where there is this communist ideology that's sort of melded with Confucianist nationalism, there is a, a hard inner core of you know the party itself acts as essentially as a Mandarin class that is dedicated to the public good as seen through this communist collectivist ideology. 
And there's good, there are good sides and there are bad sides to that. But one of the good sides is that at least they have their oligarchs under control. And here in the West, these psychopathic, predatory, parasitical oligarchs totally run the show with essentially no interference from anybody that has the slightest interest in the best uh, interests of ordinary people. So I, I think actually comparing the Western collectivist oligarchy to communism is actually an insult to the Chinese Communist Party, which is doing a much better job than the leadership class in the West. Now, go ahead and push back against that if you want to. Well, I don't I don't want to support. I don't want to push back against it too much. I don't want to support the, the CCP at the same time, the the because there is a tremendous amount of oppression that takes place. The The, the, the oligarchy class you speak of, it is interesting to there's neat people. There's neat people who've been talking about monetary policy a long time in their careers, and they've been saying if you if you uh, let the money supply become debased for long enough, it impacts the morality of a people. Um, and it, it, they're, they're just the the examples are are just enormous enormous at this point. But what you bring up with the oligarchy, it's these are. You know, I've, I've spent a great deal of time uh, living and working in Silicon Valley, and the 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 some of these people. There was a time. There was a time very recently, within the last two generations, where these people who are on the cover of uh, important magazines would have been uh, the weird uncle that was living in the basement or in the attic. Right? They were so unable to to get along in society. They had such screwy psychopathic ideas about how society should interact. And they were just no one, you know, you didn't hate them. You just understood they were different and you kept them in the basement or something so that they didn't have to be on the street. And through our monetary policy, there's just so much money thrown at people like that. And <laughs> they're, they're made the heroes, uh, which is a, I think it's a strange phenomenon that will not, not last for forever in the U S I don't think it can last um, through the world reserve currency um, no longer existing if it, if it one day does not. And I, I think that currency issue might be key, the key to why the uh, CCP, for all of its flaws, is uh, running circles, or has been anyway, running circles around the Western oligarchs. And it has to do with, with the issue of usury. When you have an oligarchical class that's purely uh, self-interested, that is creating the entire money supply out of nothing by essentially lending it into existence at interest and then having, you know, demanding that both the principal and this interest be paid back when, of course, there's not enough money that's been created to pay that all back. So they have to create even more money by lending it into existence to interest ad infinitum. That is obviously an exponential process that is mathematically unsustainable, and it's guaranteed to suck all of the wealth in the system into the clutches of those bankster oligarchs. And it's going to starve the productive sector of the capital it needs to do productive things. Whereas in China, whatever you want to say about these communist uh, oligarchs there, not the oligarchs so much, but the CCP, Mandarins, those Mandarins have created a banking system that's 80 and 90 percent public, and they lend currency into existence for building infrastructure. And so they've had these high growth rates for 30 years now, which they're trying to maintain. And I think that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts issue 
that this all turns around is will this Western parasitical oligarchical class succeed in its ambitions to take over the world, uh, likely through a World War III against the last remaining independent powers led by Russia, China and Iran, or uh, will it succumb? allowing different systems to emerge in different places, and most of them will have to push back against usury just to compete, as China has. So that's, that's kind of how I see the geopolitical issue. I think it's really all about this uh, this currency creation issue. And here you have uh, very, very artfully come to the uh, the topic that you hoped we would arrive at, which was uh, which is Bitcoin. And there, there I have a... Uh, along, I've been in the industry nine years now. I helped start an exchange. Uh, it was right next to the New York Stock Exchange. You could walk in with cash, walk out with Bitcoin. It was featured in documentary movies and really interesting, exciting time to be around the Bitcoin space. 2013, we um, we started it. And uh, I've had an ideological appreciation the whole time. There's so many flaws with Bitcoin. Something I like about it is that it moves it moves uh, money out of the hands of government and it allows the free market experiment to happen with money um, in a way, in a way that we don't have happening right now. Um, and that I think can be really exciting um, and that I think can be really liberating in a lot of ways to folks uh, and threatening to other, threatening to other interests. And that is, that's the this really important thing I like about Bitcoin, no matter what the price is on a given day, it's, it's, this potential it has to 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 decentralize banking and to put it into the hands of uh, individual consumers in a different way. And, and there's sort of two uh, projections about where cryptocurrency is going to go. The optimistic one is that the limitations of Bitcoin, such as the, the cost of mining it and things like that, will be uh, transcended and will have good crypto that will actually work. And instead of being sort of a, a collectible uh, to speculate on, it'll become real uh, currency and put the uh, oligarchs and the banking cartels out of business. Uh, that's the optimistic view. And the somewhat less optimistic view would be that it is helping educate people about the uh, worthlessness of uh, fiat uh, gover- so-called government currency that actually is, is created by private banksters, not governments, but, hey, they own the government, so it doesn't make much difference. Uh, and so by undermining confidence in that stuff, ultimately what's going to happen is that Bitcoin itself will probably crash, like all speculative fads, you know, they always end, but that it will lead us back to precious metal, which is a more solid store of wealth. So those are two views, uh, the the, op, the pro-Bitcoin or pro-crypto view and sort of the uh, the pessimistic view that it's destined to, to collapse or the bubble's going to pop up. I, I imagine you're probably more on the optimistic side. You know, I I do not like when Bitcoin people compare Bitcoin to gold as that is a that's a thing that's often said that bitcoin you know it's this gold 2.0 and there are there are aspects of bitcoin that are superior to gold for sure um but but gold is you know it's got this several thousand year old tradition and, and bitcoin's got like a 13 year old tradition and just right there like you're never going to get me to say that something that was created in my lifetime is better than shakespeare so just some, a piece of literature is better than Shakespeare. It's just there's something to having lasted the test of time. Um, and, and Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not it, it has not lasted the test of time. It's outlasted many different cryptocurrencies. It's uh, outlasted various, various schemes from the central banks. Um, 
but it's but it's you know it's untested through through many bull and bear cycles the way the way uh gold is and i am you know if if i were if i were a central banker if i were uh if i were uh, an important jp morgan shareholder um e- either of those situations I wouldn't like to see the the my my meal ticket disappear. I would work very hard to make sure my meal ticket didn't disappear. So I, I think Bitcoin's up against a tremendous battle, um, and and it doesn't have to be this this either or situation. Um, you know, there can be there can be a day where there's 400 currencies, and and you like to you prefer to use one, and I prefer to use another, and there's there's reasons to have different ones. Maybe you know, um, it doesn't have to be the Bitcoin beats out the U.S. dollar. In fact, I think the Bitcoin industry would be very bad at taking over for the dollar at this moment in time, um, and that's from being in the industry and watching what, how things transpire. Um, but the idea, you know, you and I, we can go, we can go. Um, pull ourselves up for for the weekend. We can uh, go. We can go start up a, a Bitcoin a Bitcoin node. We can run a a bank out of the node. We don't have to. No one's going to ask where you went to college or how much money you have in uh, in your capital deposits. Uh, no one. No one needs to know. You know who's who's your family. You can set up a bank. You can set up a bank effectively, and and the authorities are suddenly not. In the middle, they're they're not the gatekeepers of that process anymore. And not only do you set up a bank, you can set up all kinds of other other things. And and it, it's this decentralization that that empowers the consumer and empowers the entrepreneur in a way that we haven't known with money. And this can be very important. Absolutely. And some of the governments that don't want to be overly constrained by the Western bankster cartel are looking at ways of introducing uh, crypto into their national currency scheme. I believe both Venezuela and Iran have made some efforts at doing that. I haven't been following that closely, and I, I wondered if uh, if you could comment on the way the crypto is playing a role in this uh, geopolitical stare-down between the uh, the Western banking cartel and uh, the the other side, the, uh, the axis of evil. <laughs> You know, I, this is if a person doesn't know, uh, this is a good rule of thumb. Anything that's not Bitcoin in the crypto industry should be treated as a total scam. And Bitcoin, Bitcoin projects should also be treated as a total scam. Like it should be like the total default perspective. And we've gotten comfortable around the idea that, that there's all these banks that are in it for, you know, our own interests that are, they're going to protect us or that there's regulators who are going to protect us. And, and we're a little too comfortable around that idea. Like anything around money should be seen as a scam. That should be kind of a default. Um, when, when there's other central banks involved, you know, these are all, it's Bitcoin is this legitimate attempt to decentralize. It's so hard to censor. It's so hard to, to, to say, hey, Kevin, Kevin can't set up his own bank this weekend. It, it's so difficult to do. Then there's all these other cryptocurrencies that are total. They're just nonsense. They're just they're It's the, the Federal Reserve System called a digital currency, or it's the, the Central Bank of Iran called a digital currency, the Central Bank of Venezuela called a digital currency. And it's, it's nonsense. So the U.S. has this total chokehold uh, on, on, on uh, international finance through the SWIFT system. 
Um, and and the, the most important U.S. You know, export since World War II, in my opinion, is financial regulation. It's the, the total elimination of financial uh, freedom, financial privacy uh, for, for the individual, which is just the saddest thing to me that, that that's what the land of the free and home of the brave had as such an important export over the last the last 50 or so years. Um, and I get why all these all these countries want to break free of the U.S. system. It's so totalitarian. And any any wire has to go through New York. If it deals with the U.S. dollar, it has to go through New York. And and having worked in the Bitcoin industry all these years, I've seen like <laughs> the great tension in Bitcoin. Once you're in Bitcoin, once you're in crypto, you can do anything. It's amazing. You have total freedom. No one can stop you. And suddenly, suddenly we're left with, you know, politics. Politicians are meaningless. You can't, a person can have an abortion by mail. And a, por- a person can get whatever drug they want by mail. And a, a person can, I don't know, they can hire a murderer by mail, right? And never meet the person. So suddenly, politicians are, are actually like, they don't matter as much anymore. So suddenly morality has to play a different role. And, and this is a cool kind of thing that we're heading into, where where the politician is automatically, government is automatically made into something less, and morality is made into something more. Human interaction is made into something more. Very powerful. These these these, these central banks you think of, there there all these projects are a bunch of scams at this moment. That's 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 where I stand on them. And, and how, how about the the kind of you know s- seeming. Uh, weird uh, juxtaposition between the way that face-to-face conversation you know, with other human beings uh, without masks in, in real space, maybe closer than six feet or 60 feet or whatever the rule is this week, uh, there, there's, you know, that, that's what's going to save us on the one hand. On the other hand, there's this Bitcoin, which brings, as you say, together strangers uh, for these economic transactions that are probably not really rooted in physicality in a particular place, a particular community, um, particular faces dealing face to face. Quite the opposite. People don't really know who they're, you know, getting their Bitcoin stuff with. Like I, I was, uh, I guess I can confess that I was sort of shopping around for ivermectin on the web and discovered that the way to get that is you pay Bitcoin because apparently it's it's been so criminalized, even though this is the most uh, harmless uh, drug that's been used by millions and millions of people uh, because it apparently is sort of seen as some sort of threat to the vaccines, which are extremely lucrative. It's been it's sort of the new heroin and you know, you're committing a crime to try to get a hold of some ivermectin. And Meryl Nass uh, gets her license to practice medicine revoked for, among other things, supposedly, you know, prescribing some ivermectin. So anyway, I was, you know, I was looking into that and rather than sort of going down to the local pharmacy and, and talking to the guy and like, Hey man, you know, <laughs> can I score some of that ivermectin and, you know, be a human being or what? No, it's not, that's not how it works. It's like you're, you're, you go online and it's some anonymous website. You don't know who the heck you're dealing with. It's probably over in India or something. And then you you give them some crypto, which may or may not be worth whatever it is this week or this day or this hour, and uh, and supposedly some ivermectin is going to show up in your mailbox, and that's the exact opposite of the process of you know face to face human communication. Uh, so I mean, what how, how do you sort of bring both of those two elements together in a, a kind of a positive or utopian ideal where we would have that community? 
uh, at the same time with this total freedom that the anonymity of crypto gives us. You know, where you, you open up the first, the first book of the Bible, first chapter, you have the, the, this concept that's fundamental to Western civilization that humans are made in the likeness of God. Um, and, and it, you know, there's, there's all this kind of, I, all these ideas behind it of, of, you know, what that means. And, and this is, this is many arguments about our individuality and our freedom go back to this Genesis 126, Genesis 127, um, saying we're made in the likeness of God. This is, you know, humans are going to have freedom no matter what. They're just going to, they're going to figure out ways to do it. And the, the, to stand against that freedom is just total nonsense. And it's a waste of, it's a waste of resources. Now, now the, the idea, the idea here that, that, you know, we're going to use this, like, we're going to use strangers on the internet to, uh, satisfy this need of ours. It's not, it doesn't have to be how society goes. It is merely the human response. It, it's so preposterous that you have to go find either, right? Any, you have to go find a medicine <laughs> with Bitcoin. It's nonsense, but it's, it, it is, it is merely, uh, a temporary solution for, for this, 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 uh, interest in, in oppressing, in oppressing free people. And, and these things, they think these things cycle back and forth. We're going to end up with people face to face having good interactions again. That's where we're going to end up because that's the, the, the normal, uh, most, most easygoing way for us to interact. We don't end up on computers, everyone mining Bitcoin in their pod. Uh, with Bill Gates getting a cut of it. That's not where we end up. And inshallah. And speaking of which, getting together in person for those face-to-face interactions without the masks and the distancing uh, brings to mind the role of religious communities where people get together, you know, whether in, in somebody's home or in a local church or mosque or what have you, and they share some kind of spiritual practice and aspiration. And this COVID has been a huge monkey wrench uh, thrown into people's spiritual lives. And it seems to have been very important for the authorities to suppress uh, religious practice and to make sure that the churches were closed. And if they ever did reopen, people better stay six feet apart and, and wear masks. And, and the priests have to give their communion wafer wearing the mask. And the Muslims have to stand six feet away from each other, lining up to pray in masks, which is totally haram. It's totally out of line of the Islamic tradition. Uh, and, and so that's another area where the uh, purveyors of this uh, lockdown mandate dystopia seem to be uh, targeting the religious experience. They seem to be going after people's souls in, in that respect. And I'm, I'm wondering if, how, how does this, uh, religious community, uh, element of things, uh, work with, with the, the freedom imperative? Because a lot of times folks, uh, like Peter Simpson's been on the show, uh, they, they believe that a religious community sort of necessarily sets rules for its members. And so this sort of total individual freedom ideal, which is the basis of uh, the both libertarian thought and, and liberal thought, which is the dominant paradigm, uh, is that indeed um, religion as the focus of community challenges uh, this uh, focus on freedom. And yet, if people are genuinely free, what they the first thing they do is they want the freedom to sort of live their own lives according to the rules that they set with their neighbors based on religious traditions. 
so so I wonder uh, how how does the that element uh, of of sort of local face to face religious practice and then the war against it by the COVID overlords uh, fit in, into your libertarian perspective? That's the most the most important part of it. Um, I I believed I believed um, until March 2020. I believe the difference between communist Czechoslovakia, uh, communist China, communist Mongolia, uh, communist USSR, the difference is the church-going population in the U.S. and that they would never be able to close down the churches. I, I was certain that it was a bulwark against communism in the U.S., and it just couldn't happen. Um, and truthfully, I mean, in the USSR, they really couldn't close down the churches. That didn't happen. The, the government just didn't have the will of the people to do it. And in the U S it was devastating to me to watch churches closed on Easter in the United States. I just really thought it was impossible. Um, there, there is the, that is the, um, that is the linchpin there. That is the, um, if you can demoralize a population so much more is, is possible, uh, in what you can get that population to do. And, uh, the, the opposite of, demoralizing a population is to give them something that they can they can believe in um for me for me that is my 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 faith in god um and i travel three hours uh every sunday each way um to go to church to go to a church that has no masks has no social distancing um and i just recognize how important that is for me and i know it's important for others um that is You just hit on the, you just hit on, you hit on everything right there when you ask that question about church. Um, if we can, if we can, uh, come up with a way to, to remoralize, uh, many more Americans, um, and church, church may be one way to do that. Um, we, we solve this problem. If we do not, uh, we have a difficult road ahead. Um, you, you, you hit on the point. And what, what about the, the sort of, End time scenarios, which I'm going to talk about in the second hour with Robert Singer, who thinks that the end of the world is coming in 2023. Uh, a lot of folks look at these prophecies coming out of the great religious traditions and think that things seem to be sort of coming to a head right now. And, and, and I've wondered whether it might be possible to bring Christians and Muslims together. Uh, around that and, uh, in, you know, using perhaps the shared love of Mary and Jesus, which is a part of both Islam and Christianity and all forms of Christianity. And, and that something like that, uh, you know, recognizing that maybe we're, we're in the end times and that it might be time to court, sort of, you know, get to the, the core of the issue and, uh, and bring folks together, whether it's Christians and Muslims or, you know, Shia and Sunni Muslims who've been driven apart by the usual suspects and, and maybe the, the Catholic, Protestant and Eastern Christians who've also been, uh, driven apart, fragmented that maybe some kind of movement for spiritual unity in the face of the likely end times, uh, and also a unity that is very strong in its opposition to this kind of demonic tyranny that's being foisted on us that that, that kind of movement uh, would seemingly have a lot of uh, potential. And, you know, one of the things that excites me about RFK Jr.'s book is that he's, you know, he's on target to sell millions of copies and there's so much 
truth in that book compared to every other book that sells that many copies. And then he's the carrier of the sort of, you know, messianic, uh, you know, Kennedy dynasty aura, uh, you know, coming from a, a Catholic family that, you know, may not be all that much better in its Catholicism than say Joe Biden. Uh, but still there, there's that, that kind of, you know, aura of, of somebody who's, who's speaking truth and justice coming out of a religious tradition. So anyway, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you have any ideas about, uh, how the people of strong faith, uh, who are opposed to the demonic tyranny can, uh, can unite and, and, you know, figure out that they've been divided and conquered. It's time to unite and, and, uh, and kick those bad guys out. I, you know, I, um, uh, for some time I've operated under the premise that, um, you got, you got, you've, you've got these these hyenas that have existed throughout all history, and those those people they're up to no good, they're causing trouble, um, and they're not the variable in history. And you've got the mass, the you know, they're they're Fauci's today, they're Bill Gates's today, um, or who knows, maybe a Joe Biden. Um, the you've got this large mass of people that, that are kind of sheep-like and they're trying to figure out, you know, who to follow and, and what to do and how to get through the day as easily as possible. And, and then you have this, they're not, they're not the, the variable either. They exist in all periods of time. It, you have, you have this other group that is the variable. It is the lion that is, is the lion going to be asleep on the job or is the lion going to be awake and on the prowl? And if, if you can wake up enough lions, I have no question. This is, this is, through all periods of history, you wake up enough lions, the lions go do their thing, and, and everything works out okay. Um, I don't need I don't need to have a grand plan necessarily. Um, I don't need for you and uh, for for uh, three other wonderful writers to be on the same page. I know that if you're a woken up lion, just by virtue of walking through your day, you're going to have exude more freedom. Um, by being awake and people are going to start to naturally congregate to you. Freedom's going to spread around you. And, and the solution is there in, in a, in a free country, there is no need for this, you know, for a big top, top down movement. Um, that's, you know, all the, the big street protests, I guess that I, I understand it's a thing of the left. I understand it's a thing of, you know, France and Germany, in the United States. I, I really believe there is this individual sentiment that, that, just waking up enough lions does the job. Um, that's where I'm at with that. That that, and this is why you know I wrote face masks in one lesson for this kind of purpose. I wrote face masks hurt kids for this purpose to empower the parent at the school board, to empower the parent speaking to the teacher. Face masks in one lesson to to empower the person and not wear the mask to just in their own life to say, "Ha, huh, I'm going to say no to this. I know exactly how to say no to it. I know how to never wear that mask again. It's going to work out fine." That's where I'm at. How do I wake up as many lions as possible and not worry about the hyenas and the sheep too much? All right. So maybe the revolution will be enough parents ripping off the masks and roaring like lions at school board meetings. We're definitely seeing some of that these days. And you're contributing to it. So thank you so much, Alan Stevo, uh, author of the Bitcoin Manifesto and uh, and the face masks hurt kids. Face masks in one lesson. Fantastic stuff. Keep up the great work and God bless. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Take care. 
That's Alan Stevo back to talk about the Akhiru Zaman or the end times prophecies with Islam, not not with the Islamic scholars. I already did that. Uh, this is going to be with Robert Singer, who thinks the world is ending in 2023, and he thinks that all of the great or many of the great uh, prognosticators thought so too. So we'll see about that in the second hour. <laughs> 